So we're picking up with uh, Mark today, right where uh, uh, Daniel left off. Daniel started into this section that begins at Mark 4.35 and runs through uh, chapter 6.6. 6. And that whole section is uh, asking uh, the question, who is this man? Who, who is this man? I had a um, professor in seminary years ago. And for, and we were studying the Gospel of John, and he says, I have this great um, acronym for you to help you remember what the Gospel of John is about. And it, it really applies well to, to all of the Gospels. He said, this is how you're going to remember what the Gospels are about, what the Gospel of John is about. He said, he said now the first thing is, is Jesus. First thing is that it's about Jesus. And then he went, no, that's it. It's about Jesus. And he was right. I remembered that for 30 years. So, uh, and so uh, the Gospels are about Jesus. And uh, it, the point he was trying to make was that too often we go to the text and we start rushing into uh, what does this say about me? What does this say to me? How am I supposed to think? How am I supposed to live? And especially in the Gospels, the first thing we're supposed to ask is, what does this teach me about Jesus? And then that might have implications for me and my life. Uh, but the primary purpose is uh, to learn about Jesus. And that's really true of the whole of the Scriptures. If you think about our catechism, what do the Scriptures principally teach? Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So it always starts with what man is to believe concerning God. And there are certain passages where you can move pretty quickly from what we're to believe about God to what duty God requires of man. So, for example, the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments opens up with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Have no other gods before me. So we move pretty quickly from who is God, who is this God, to what does he require of us. I heard a commentator once say that the book of Proverbs is about how to live God's way in God's world. And so you move pretty quickly in, in, in the wisdom literature from who is God to how does he want me uh, to live. In the Gospels, it's just the opposite. Uh, the Gospels are primarily about Jesus and really only in, in any kind of implicatory way, only in a secondary way, how am I uh, supposed, to, supposed to live? So as we're going through the Gospels, we should be wanting to know more about this Jesus person. And, uh, and the way Mark is doing it in this section is by forcing his reader to ask this question, who is this man? Sometimes he does it uh, by having the characters in the story actually ask the question, who is this man? And so those four, these four uh, narratives, the first two that, that Daniel did yesterday, last week, and then the two that we're going to look at primarily today, they all kind of are pushing us to ask this question. They're even bookended by the, the very question. So in... Um, in, four, four, in chapter 4, verse 41, in the story where Jesus calms the storm, after he calms the storm, 
that disciples actually ask, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? And then in our last narrative in this section, uh, where Jesus is rejected in uh, Nazareth, the Nazarenes, the people of his hometown, ask the question, how can this man do these things? How can he possibly do these things? And so each of these uh, stories, each of these uh, four stories, are pushing the reader to uh, make a choice because there's a choice being foisted upon the characters of these stories. Now, when I say stories, I don't mean these are made-up stories. I mean these events that Mark has recorded for us, the characters in these events, the characters in these stories that Mark has written down for us, uh, all are pushed into a choice. Mark, uh, Mark's pericopes here highlight Jesus as a miracle worker. His mighty acts invoke a judgment from those who witness him. The disciples in the foundering boat must choose between faith and fear. The witnesses that, uh, uh, of the people, the people who witnessed the healing of the demoniac must choose between exception, accepting Jesus or rejecting Jesus. Jairus and the hemorrhaging woman most, both must choose between faith and despair. And even in Jesus' hometown, they must choose between belief and disbelief. And D.A. Carson uh, said that Jesus supersedes the power of nature, demons, illness, death, and family influence. Confining Jesus into these categories and stereotypes is to misunderstanding. Acknowledging his supremacy to such categories is the first act of discipleship. So he's, Mark is trying to push us to, see, to think of Jesus as bigger, as other, and force us into a decision, just as the people in the narratives are forced into a decision. And so uh, it's interesting in Mark's narrative, you know, Mark is the shortest of the Gospels, and it moves rapidly. It's short pericopes uh, that are connected together with the word immediately. It's just like he's moving through the life of Jesus, boom, 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 and we're just kind of being drug along. He's trying to create a page turner, as it were. He just can't put it down. You've got to keep moving. It's interesting. He slows down here. Um, the story of the demoniac in Gerizim and the story of healing the woman and Jairus' daughter are two of, uh, I'm not sure if they're the longest, or at least they're two of the longest stories in the entire book. He's kind of slowed down a bit, and he's wanting us to, uh, again, ask this question, who is this man? And because of that, I think I want to uh, just read through all four stories. I want us just to hear all four stories back to back as John put them together for us to hear them. I've, I've been, you know, I've observed a lot of different uh, Presbyterian churches uh, over the years, and I've never seen one that prays more in worship than we do. I've seen churches pray as much as we do, but not any church that actually prays more in a like, longer period of time in worship than, than we do. And uh, I've, even, I've been to a lot where they pray a lot less. I've been to one PCA church where prayer did not show up in the bulletin. It, like it was its own element, like they're, now we're going to pray to adore God, or now we're going to 
confess our sins. We're going to pray a prayer of confession. Now we're going to pray a prayer of thanksgiving. Prayer, they prayed during the worship, but it was all transitional type prayers. They would pray before singing, after singing. The preacher would pray before he started to preach the sermon. Um, so there was prayer, but, but it was nowhere near as long as what we do. On the other hand, uh, I've been in churches both that read less scripture and church, PCA churches that read more scripture than we do. Uh, in our worship service. I think if you, I haven't asked Daniel this question, but I bet if you asked Daniel Park, he would say most of the churches he's been a part of read less scripture than we do in their worship service. Uh, But there are others uh, that will read more. And and one of the reasons uh, that we don't read more is because, I don't just mean all saints, but the church in general, uh, it's because we've been moving out of an auditory culture into a visual culture. I suspect, I've never seen this done, but I suspect if you took the top 10 grossing movies of every year prior to 1960 and the top 10 grossing movies after 1990 and counted the word and did a word count on the script, I suspect you would find there was a lot more words in the top 10 grossing movies prior to 1960 than after 1990. We're moving out of an auditory and into a more visual uh, culture. But the Bible was written for to be heard. If you if you you know we're we're so um, we stress so much uh, reading our Bible. You know in our in our American evangelical culture, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. Go home and read your Bible. Bring your Bible to church. Open it up while the pastor's reading. Read along with him. Read your Bible. But you realize for the first sixteen hundred years of the Christian church, not counting the time prior to Christ, in the first 1,600 years of the church, most households did not have a Bible. You know, the printing press didn't come along until the 1400s, and it wasn't like the day the printing press came along, everybody got a Bible. Uh, It was really early 1600s before most households would have a Bible, and if you did, you only had one. You had your family Bible. You didn't have you know, the kid's Bible for your three-year-old and the teenage Bible for your teenagers, and then mom and daddy each have their Bible. You had one uh, family Bible. And so uh, when Paul writes these, his letters to the churches or when these men write their Gospels, they're expecting people to hear them, not read them. And so I'm just going to ask us to stretch as modern Americans and listen for a while. Now, I'm going to put the text up here. So if you just have to read along, it's there. But, but let's read through this as Mark intended it uh, to, be, to be heard. So on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side and leave the crowd. They took him with them uh, in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. 
He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what, they had, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they begged Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went and began to proclaim in the Decropolis how Jesus, what Jesus, how much, sorry, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And the great child followed him and thronged about him. And there was this woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had And was no better, but was growing worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For for she said, if I touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, There came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. 
and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them outside and took the child's mother and father and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So as we you know, go through these stories, we don't actually get any teaching. I mean, the teaching of Jesus. That's not like the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it mentions that he teaches you know, in, the, the Nazar- in the story here about in Nazareth. Uh, it says that he you know, began to teach in the synagogue, but we don't know what he was teaching. These are events from his life, and these events are causing people to have to make a decision about his life. And so in the first one, where Jesus calms the storm, I always find it fascinating. You know, there's this terrible storm. They think they're going to die. And they're afraid, and so they wake up Jesus. And then Jesus calms the storm, and then the narrative says, and then they were really afraid because they were being faced with the idea that they were in the presence of someone who had power over the storm. The storm was scary enough, but this is a person who has power over the storm. And, and so they, they are really afraid now once they realize, you know, they, these are the disciples. They have been taking Jesus kind of at face value, right? He's a good teacher. You know, we like him. Uh, uh, you know, Dennis is a good guy kind of thing. But suddenly, uh, Jesus has calmed the storm. And I think Daniel mentioned it last week. These storms can come up uh, rapidly on the Sea of Galilee, which is really just a big lake. We call it the Sea of Galilee, but it's a, huge, it's a big lake. It's like eight miles across and 20 miles long, so you can't see from one side to the other. You get out in the middle, you just see water. So it you know, feels like a sea, but it's, it's a large lake. But because of the way the mountains uh, are around it, it can cause this like wind tunnel effect. And so you can have like hurricane-level wind and storms on the Sea of Galilee you know, to this day. And, uh, and so they, they're all of a sudden, you know, they're in the middle of the lake in these relatively small boats, and now they're in the middle of a hurricane. And, uh, and any one of us would be afraid being on a boat that size 
in a hurricane. But once they face Jesus and Jesus' power, they uh, and realize, you know, only God can do this. What does this mean? And and so they're pushed into this scenario where they have to choose between faith and and fear. And then we get the story of Jesus uh, healing uh, um, the man with a demon. And it's the beginning of chapter 5. And all three characters in chapter 5, the demon, the woman with the bleeding problem, and the, the dead daughter, all three are healed by touch. Not every time does Jesus touch someone to heal them, but in this narrative, there's a touch involved in all three. All three would make Jesus unclean by touching him or him touching them. So there's nothing in the Old Testament about being unclean because you're possessed by a demon, but this demon-possessed man lives in the tombs. Well, you do become unclean by touching the dead bodies or going into the tombs of the, of the dead. And so the man, the, the demon-possessed man is unclean constantly because of where he lives. And so he comes and Jesus not only, heal, not only removes the demon, but he's also taking the man's uncleanness onto himself. He is making him clean by receiving his uncleanness. And the same thing again with the lady and the young girl. So in the, uh, but we'll get to more of that, you know, when we get to that story. It's interesting in Numbers 19, chapter 19, the last half of that chapter. If you become unclean by touching a dead person and then don't go through the cleansing rituals prescribed there in Numbers, that chapter 19, you are cut off from Israel. So you, you are unclean for even going through the rituals. You're unclean for seven days. But if you, you know, don't go through the rituals, you are cut off from Israel. So this, this man possessed by the demon should be you know, cut off. There's no hope for him whatsoever. I think Daniel mentioned last week, he is a cast off. He, he is a, he's beyond help. He's hopeless. And yet Jesus not only removes his demon, but receives that, that casting off. Jesus becomes the cast off one on the cross that the demoniac and all of the rest of us can be healed from our cast offness, as it were. But then, similar to the, the disciples' reaction, the t- people from the town, they come out and they see the clean man, and again, they're forced to make a choice. So, this is a guy they've had to deal with for quite some time. You know, they've tried to chain him up. They've kicked him out of town. They, they literally have cast him off. And, uh, and they're kind of in constant fear of him. Now, and, and, and he's, he's been running around naked, you know, screaming and beating people up. And, you know, he is, there's nothing. It's not somebody you invite over for dinner. And he... But now they come. They all come out at the at the you know the herdsmen have said you know this is this has happened, the, all the townspeople and it says people from around the region come out, and and here he is dressed, calmly having a conversation with Jesus. The reaction ought to be, wow, you must be a representative of God. But the reaction that Jesus gets is, 
go away. <laughs> they were, again, like the disciples, they were afraid of the demoniac. They were really afraid of the person who was in control of the demoniac. And they wanted him out of town, get out of this region, leave us alone. Do you ever wonder? I, I do. I often think, why, why doesn't God just show himself? Why do I have to live in faith? Why can't God just show himself? It never goes well when he does. Uh, you know, you think about uh, them, uh, the appearance of God on Mount Sinai. The people of God don't go, yay, finally God's with us. They go, Moses, you go talk to him. I ain't getting close to that. And we see here, even though with Jesus, it's a veiled presence of God. Jesus has left his glory behind by taking onto himself a human nature. His human nature is veiling his glory, and yet when it kind of seeps out in what he does, people don't embrace him. They ask him to go away. And so I suspect the Bible is trying to tell us exactly, it's answering my question, why doesn't God just show himself? Because it wouldn't go well. It wouldn't go well for us or for anybody else. We would ask him to go away. Those who will not trust in Jesus' words will not trust in his deeds. I had a, uh, I remember, I've never been a contemporary Christian music guy. I like, I like my Trinity uh, hymnal. I like my Psalter. It's good enough for me. I just never, like, listen to Christian music a lot. But you can't avoid it when you're in college. And uh, David Meese was a Christian singer back in the 80s. And he had a song called uh, They'll Never Believe. And one of the choruses went, Though he healed the sick, yes, he raised the dead. Though he could turn the sky from a blue to a red, it doesn't matter what they heard or what they had seen. Some people refused to believe. And uh, I think we're, we see that in this section of the Scriptures. The, the miracles are forcing a decision. And just as often as not, the decision is go away. Go away. I think most people like me, if they were at D.A. Carson said, most people, if they were asked, would probably say that they would like to see some manifestation of God. But this story is a cold shower for such religious uh, pipe dreams. When God manifests himself in Jesus, most people ask him to leave. And so then that brings us then to our first real one we're going over today, uh, which is Jesus heals the woman and Jairus' daughter. This story <clears throat> is a sandwich. It starts with Jairus, and it ends with Jairus, but it has the story of healing the woman in the middle. And Mark does this about five or six times throughout his gospel. He'll start a narrative, then he'll go over and tell some other narrative, and then he'll come back and finish the narrative that he started. And every time he does it, the middle narrative helps you understand the bigger narrative. He's using the middle narrative as an illustration of the point of the bigger point, what you're supposed to get out of the outside narrative. So in this case, Jairus, Jairus approaches Jesus, and Jesus goes with him. And then Jesus is interrupted. This movement is interrupted. The story is interrupted. Jesus heals the woman with the bleeding problem. And then Jesus returns to the original mission and raises uh, Jairus' daughter. And one of the reasons, you know, so we, there are lots of clues in the text that makes us realize, I mean, again, Mark does this in all his sandwiches, but even just in this one sandwich, he gives us lots of clues to make us realize that we're supposed to be tying these together. That's not just like Mark's recounting a coincidence. 
They were on their way to see Jairus. Oh, then he gets interrupted by this woman, and then they finish. You know, he's just—he's not just telling this, telling this in, in chronological order. He's making a point for us, and uh, so he, there are lots of details of the story that he brings out that ties the two together. Both females, as we've mentioned, are healed by a touch, by Jesus's touch. Both females, both are healed by Jesus's touch. Both are called daughter. Now, Jesus refers to the woman who is healed as daughter. He uses that language. This is the only place in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus refers to anyone as daughter. So that stands out. And then, and then of course, it's Jairus' daughter. The, te- the narrator tells us it's Jairus' daughter that he's going to heal. So he's interrupted from going to heal Jairus' daughter. He heals the woman and refers to her as daughter. I think that might trigger something in Jairus' mind. He's concerned about his daughter. He's probably a little upset that we've paused uh, because we're gonna, we'll read the narrative again. We'll see that it says, you know, she's on the brink of death, and now Jesus has paused, and Jesus looks at this woman and says, daughter. And Jairus is going, what about my daughter? And then the woman has the illness. It says in the text, the woman has this illness, this bleeding for 12 years. Jairus' daughter is 12 years old. And then in both stories, Jesus is met by rebuke by the bystanders. And then finally, in both stories, he comes in contact again with the uncleanness. All three of the stories in chapter 5, the demoniac, the, the woman, and, and the daughter, uh, they're all three hopeless causes. Society had given up on them, and all three characters transfer their uncleanness to Jesus. So let's start the, Darius, the story of Jairus and his daughter. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, so now you know, we'd gone through the storm to one side of the Sea of Galilee, now we've come back to the other side. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. All right, so rulers of the synagogue. There were elders, there were presbyters in every synagogue. There was a group of lay people that uh, oversaw the functioning of the synagogue. And one would be elected president. So still a lay person. There were preachers. There were clergy. There were professional clergy. But the elders uh, were lay people. And one would be elected president of the, of the body. And then still being a lay person, uh, he was kind of in charge of the synagogue. He would be similar to, to my job, but with a bit more authority. You know, it was his job to look after the building. It was his job to uh, put together the worship services, the order of worship. It was his job. He didn't have a single preacher, so it was his job to, you know, make sure someone was lined up to preach that Sunday. He was just kind of the organizer and protector and spokesperson for the synagogue. So this was this was a significant person in the in you know this community. You know, he's he's. Uh, he would be looked to and respected. Sometimes, uh, you would, uh, sometimes they would give the, the title of ruler of the synagogue, or we could say president of the synagogue, as an honorific. So like, I'm an, I'm an important person in the city, and so they make me president of the synagogue, but I'm way too busy to do it. And so Robert actually does all the work. He's the one that's putting together the sermon and painting the wall when it needs painting or, or, or whatever, 
Sometimes it was just an honorific, uh, but typically it was the person was actually doing the work of the, of the building. So anyway, this significant person in the community comes up to Jesus. And finding him, he, fall, he falls down at his feet and implores him earnestly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. Now, notice, it's, again, this is, this is you know, typical Mark, right? Jesus doesn't say anything right here, right? There's no response to Jairus. Jairus comes up and says, Please come right now. My daughter's about to die. And, it said, and the narrative says, and Jesus went with him. I mean, they just immediately take off. You know, we get the impression that there's no, no further discussion. This is, this is life and death. We're, it's, this is go. You know, Mark, Mark's kind of communicating this idea that we're just, as soon as she, he says it, Jesus goes with him, gone. So then a large crowd follows him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but was growing worse. So, again, back to the Leviticus, back to the law of God, the Torah. After, your after a woman had her monthly period, she was unclean for seven days. And if the uh, blood flow continued beyond the normal blood flow, you know, beyond the normal time period, then she would be unclean for the entire time period of the, of the flow, of the, of the blood flow. And so this woman has been religiously unclean and unable to worship for 12 years. I've, I know I've heard many of you say at various times, you know, you've been sick or traveling or something and you've missed one or two weeks of being here on a Sunday and you're like, it is just so good to be back right? You, you long to be back with the people of God, worshiping God, 12 years. And this isn't like, you know, somebody who's, you know, bedridden and comatose, you know, somebody at the end of their life who is, is now, a, we say, a shut-in, who can't get out. This is someone in the prime of their life who, week by week, is wanting to be back in the presence of God's people, singing God's praises. And for 12 years, uh, the answer is is no. And she's desperate. In the Greek, it just piles up these participles. Having a blood flow, having suffered from many doctors, having exhausted all her wealth, having not improved, having gotten worse. And then and then the, the adjectives, right? Many, much, all gaining nothing for twelve years. Many, much all having exhausted, having given, having sought out, having suffered under many doctors. She got nothing. Okay, I also know this one. Many of you told me how frustrating it is when you go to doctor after doctor and they can't tell you what's wrong with you. Twelve years. Twelve years. No answers. And so she finally hears about Jesus. So hearing she came and in coming she touched. She heard, and she came, and she touched. And in Mark, over and over, this idea of hearing leading to doing. That's, a sign, that's the first sign of discipleship in Mark. You hear, and then you do. And so Mark is clearly indicating that to, to us that he sees her now as a disciple. She heard about Jesus, and what did she do? She came, and she touched but 
her faith is mixed with superstition. It was very common uh, in this time period, both among the Jews and the Greeks, to believe that power went out from powerful people if you touched their clothes. I think as I, I remember one hearing about how Caesar would have to just have people to keep the crowds away from him because it, if they could just touch his robe, Caesar, if they could touch Caesar's robe, then that, his power would come, you know, they would gain part of Caesar's power. And so she's fallen into this superstition. She's trusting the right person, but not in the right way. And so Jesus perceives in himself that this power has gone out from him. And so he turns to the crowd and says, who touched me? Well, there are lots of people touching him, lots of people bumping up against him. They're, they're just this mass of people, and they're trying to move down the street, and he's being jostled on every side. And, of course, the, the, the disciples rightly go, what do you mean, who touched you? I've probably touched you six times in the last ten steps. What do you mean, who touched you? But Jesus knows that this has happened, and so he keeps looking. He keeps searching the crowd. Who touched me? He's wanting her now to step forward in faith. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Not you're touching my garment. Your faith has made you well. The lone instrument of salvation, faith, has made you well. And then it's really interesting. He says, go in peace. Be healed of your disease. The word here for healed can be translated healed or saved. And it's only in context that you know which is which. So our translators wisely put healed because it's in the context of your disease. But one wonders if Jesus isn't doing a little double meaning thing here. Uh, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He gives her the benediction. Go in peace. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well. You've been unclean for 12 years, and I have received that uncleanness. Through the mechanism of your faith, I have received that uncleanness. You may go in peace. The church was pretty slow to learn this message of Jesus, that faith saves us. Throughout the entire of the Middle Ages, having something to touch to get the power off of it, the whole point of relics. You know, if I could have the Shroud of Turin, that garment that had touched Jesus, and then I can touch that garment, then I'm going to get that power. I'm going to get something from that that's going to help me. If I can only have a, a shard, a piece of wood, a shard of wood from the cross, and I can hold on to that, that will help me. I will get power from that. But Jesus paused to make sure the woman was not left in her superstition, but told her her faith had saved her. So, while they were still talking, there came men from the ruler's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Now, this is the ESV, where it says Jesus overhearing what they said. In the NIV, it says, Jesus ignoring what they said. Now, it's, the reason for this is, the, again, the, the Greek word here, parakouin, can be used based on the context. It can mean to overhear something not intended for one's ears. You know, I overheard Justin and Jeff 
uh, talking. They were talking, and I overheard what they said. You overhear something not intended for your ears. Or it can mean to pay no attention to or ignore or refuse to listen to. Yeah, I, I heard what you said, but it's, it's of no, no account. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It has no significance. Or, or to discount the truth of something, to ignore, to refuse to listen, or to discount the truth of something. And so the NIV uh, uh, translated it ignore, and the ESV translated it over here. I, and I think Mark chose this word on purpose because he's doing all of these things. Jesus is doing all of these things. He overheard it, and he's ignoring it, and he's not going to, he doesn't address it. He doesn't say, he, later on when he deals with the, the, the professional mourners, and we're going to get that to that next, he, he corrects them. He, doesn't, he says, you know, they're not, she's not dead, she's asleep. Here he doesn't address the report at all. He just looks at Jairus and says, do not fear, only believe. Jairus has just been given the hopelessness. Up until this mo- moment, there was hope. And now we've run into hopelessness. Your daughter is dead. And Jesus responds to the hopelessness. Do not fear, only believe. Then he casts all the, the crowd away, and even some of his disciples, and only takes Peter, James, and John with him. So they come to the synagogue ruler's house, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And he, and he entered in. All right, so... He's cast one crowd aside, and now he's gotten to the house and walked into a whole other crowd. And at, during this time period, you would, if someone in your household died, you would hire professional mourners to come and to, to mourn on your behalf for your departed one. Um, Rabbi Judah, in his Talmud writings, said that even the poorest person in Israel should hire at least two flute players and one wailing woman if someone dies in your house. Well, this is no poor person. This is the ruler of the synagogue. And so it, it probably was this, was, this was probably good for your career as a professional mourner. You wanted this gig? Because this, Jairus is, you know, one of the leaders of the community. So you're a professional mourner at his funeral. That goes on the resume, as it were. And it's and Jairus is wealthy. His wife has already gone out and brought in a huge, you know, crew of mourners. And and so they're all in there, wailing and playing instruments. And there was clapping hands involved. And just it was a huge commotion going on at Jairus's house. And so Jesus walks into this and says, Why are you making commotion and weeping? The girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Now, this is where you see professional mourners. These are not people that are actually broken up about the death of this girl. These are paid performers. And Jesus walks in and goes, She's not dead. She's asleep. And these are the dead professionals, right? These are the professionals of the dead. They know what a dead body looks like when they see it because this is what they do every day. And they come to Jesus and they laugh at him. What do you mean she's only asleep? We've seen her. She's dead. And, and this has actually caused a lot of commentators to spill a lot of ink. What is Jesus doing saying that this dead girl is asleep? 
So some have gone with, well, she's not dead. She's only comatose. But most think that, that Jesus is asking the hearers here and us to perceive death in a whole new way. That death is, is not the end. And that if we are in Christ and if we have Christ as our Savior, death really is just another form of sleep. He's asking them to perceive reality differently than they have perceived it in the past. And so uh, after they laugh at him, he kicks all the professional mourners out. He goes in with the mother and father and, and then Peter, James, and John. So it's just the six of them in there with the girl. And then taking her by the hand, so again touching, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. See how complete the healing is. She's up walking around. Get over sickness. You're hungry. You've lost some weight. Well, she's hungry. She's fully healed from being dead. And so going back to how does the sandwich, you know, fit into the broader narrative? The, the woman with the bleeding problem is portrayed as, as desperate, as someone who has lost all hope. She's tried everything, and there's nothing left. She's got nothing left but, but Jesus. And, and Jesus refers to her as daughter and says that her faith has healed her. He then turns to Jairus and says, Do not fear, only believe. And what kind of belief is Jairus supposed to have? The type of belief that the woman had. When there was, n- you know, there, there was no help, there were no options. There was nothing that anybody could do. She had lost all hope, but there was Jesus. And so he turns to Jairus and says, don't fear, believe. Believe like this woman. You've just been told there are no options, that nothing can help. She's dead. Don't bother the teacher any longer. Believe like she believed. Don't fear. Believe like. So this woman who has been an outcast and not been able to worship for 12 years then becomes the example of faith for the leader of the church. And so it, 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 you, this is so common in the scriptures where the reversal of fortune, where the, the, weak, the meek inherit the earth, the strong become the weak and the weak become the strong. Here the strong is being educated by the weak, being taught what true faith looks like. So then we get to Nazareth. So he went away from there and he came to his hometown and disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach, and they were astonished, saying, Where did the man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is that not just the carpenter's son, the son of Mary? I mean, the carpenter, the son of Mary. Do we not have his mother and his brothers and his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Nazareth is a little backwater town. Makes Glade Spring look huge. That's where I grew up. Estimated to be about 500 uh, people, covering about 60 acres. I don't know if you know your acres, but that's not a lot of land. Prior to the New Testament, there'd never, there's no recording of the Nazareth as existing. If it wasn't in the Bible, we wouldn't know it ever existed. There are mentions of it after the New Testament, but up to this point, 
There's no writings that ever mention Nazareth anywhere. Much of the population was probably Gentile or mixed. Matthew refers to Galilee, the region in which Nazareth sits as Galilee of the Gentiles. And there was no Christian church in Nazareth prior to 325. So, I mean, most of Europe is settled. I mean, has churches by 325. No church in Nazareth until 325. And then so these little backwater people, they don't refer to this Jesus as the son of Joseph as they would normally. You were usually referred to as the son of your father. They refer to him as the son of his mother, son of Mary. He was an offense. They took offense at him. It's the word scandalon or stumbling block. It occurs eight times in Mark, and all eight refer to something that blocks people from coming to faith. So the first three stories... Jesus is rejected because of his otherness. He steals the storm, go away. He heals the demoniac, go away. He's foolish. He thinks that people who are dead are only asleep, go away. Now he's rejected because he's too common. We know know who this guy is. This is just Rick. We've been around him a long time. And we know exactly what his weaknesses and strengths are. Who does he think he is to be telling us how we should see the Bible? According to John 5, uh, I'm sorry, John chapter 7, verse 5, Jesus' brothers did not believe during his earthly ministry. And even after his death and resurrection, only James and Judas are mentioned. Sometimes Jesus is referred to as Jude. But only James and Judas are acknowledged as having come to faith. Joseph and Simeon are never mentioned again after the Gospels. And so Jesus quotes this proverb. This is the proverbial statement of the time period. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. People have been marveling, being astonished and afraid through the whole thing. Now we find out what makes Jesus marvel. It's unbelief. It's not their sin, but it's their unbelief. Again, as I said in the first three stories, it was Jesus' otherness that made people reject him. In this story, it's Jesus' familiarity. But all the stories are pushing us to the one question, who is this man? And, And pushing us to make a decision to either believe or not believe who Jesus is and to accept him or ask him to go away. So we'll pick up with the next big hunk next week, but be asking yourself, who, who is this man? All right, thanks.